Welcome back to season two of the Ivy League Prep Academy podcast, equipping you to successfully pursue the college of your dreams. We believe everyone deserves to reach their full potential and the admissions process shouldn't hold you back. Tessa Forshaw unknowingly and perhaps unintentionally changed the way I teach high school students. We'll talk about in just a minute some of the brilliant ideas I learned while taking her design thinking class at Harvard, but we are lucky to have Tessa on our podcast today to hear her experiences earning degrees at Stanford and Harvard, teaching at Harvard, and leading the charge towards better business practices throughout her work at the Harvard Next Level Lab and professionally as a top executive at People Rocket. We are so lucky to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here, Tessa. Of course, anytime. Me too. So fun. And I understand that a book is coming, so maybe we'll have an opportunity later to really, really help promote that book. And and, and I'm, I'm sure you'll have amazing things in the future that we can talk about as well. Yeah. So after earning your bachelor's degree in Australia, you came to the U.S. and attended two of my listeners' true dream schools, Stanford, where you earned your master's degree, and Harvard, where you're teaching, you taught my class, but you're teaching kind of on the side as you pursue your doctorate degree. So mm-hmm. uh, amazing. That is a, a truly exciting experience that I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about. Let's start with Stanford. What's the best thing about Stanford? Goodness. Uh, apart <laughs> from the weather, <laughs> which the weather, I yeah. deeply miss uh, right now here in Cambridge, Mass, where I am, uh, I think the best thing about Stanford um, is definitely the um, uh, the feeling of um, anything is possible that's on that campus. Um, uh, there's a very, very palpable entrepreneurial spirit and a, a deep desire to just you know, come up with an idea and be like, let's build it and see, or let's let's prototype this and just throw it together. And um, I think that that's a really unique uh, thing to Stanford, or at least in my experience. And yeah, I would say that's the thing that I love most about having been a student there. And then I taught at the uh, D school as a lecturer for several years. I think that that was one of my favorite things about teaching there too, was the students a sense of anything's possible and just like build it and, and give it a go kind of oh. mentality. What an answer. What an answer. There's so much in there. I, I won't unpack it right now. I think that deserves an, an additional, I mean, just the idea that we don't, we don't wait until we're ready to go pursue our dreams. We go and we figure it out as we, as we do it because you learn so much in the iteration and the failure and everything else. And that Stanford has that kind of community, that kind of, of just an overall, this is, this is who we are. This is our context. This is our culture. And when you come here, you bring the best of what you have and, and we create together. We, we, we live your brilliant ideas and we go and we do something about them. What, a, what an amazing compliment to the culture and the campus at Stanford. So I remember you taught at the D school, which, I mean, best, uh, highest ranked design school in the world forever. Uh, what would you say? Is it better studying at Stanford where you got your master's degree or teaching at Stanford, uh, which you did for years? Um, goodness, really? I mean, they're really, it's a really different experience. I think um, I am one of those educators that constantly believes that in a, 
in a learning environment, I am just holding the space. And so I'm learning from my students um, and they're all learning from each other. And especially at a place like Stanford, they bring such a rich body of knowledge into the classroom. Um, uh, and so for in that regard, I think the distinction isn't as dramatic as, as one might think, because you're always learning and immersed. Um, but ultimately for me, um, uh, I, I loved being a student there. I think it's pretty incredible to um, have the opportunity to learn from um, the people who are leading some of the discussions of things you care about. So, for example, you can learn psychology from Carol Dweck, who came up with growth mindset. You know, you... um, can understand why research ethics are really important because the Zimbardo prison experiment happened underneath the building you're sitting in. Yes. You know, there's all those kinds of um, uh, real life things that make it a very magical, magical place to be a student. Ah, so well said. I love it. So let's let's travel. I know we're going at, at lightning speed <laughs> uh, all the way to Cambridge. And and what do you love about Harvard? So something I love about Harvard is it's really different to um, Stanford, and uh, that is that at Harvard they culturally it's a beautiful place for um, really always thinking about the um, uh, equity impacts and unintended consequences and sort of um, social benefit of um, research and decisions. And so the lens by which things are looked at is a little bit more evaluative and critical based in sort of a critical theory approach than at Stanford. And um, for me personally, like coming from one institution to the other, doing the same type of work I've it's made me so much richer because it's evolved my work in a really different way and made it much more comprehensive so I think um yeah in in that my answer to that is uh is really this deeply evaluative um frame and also deep commitment to things being grounded in theory and science and rigor and um and i think that's in the best interest of our society so that's what i love about harvard the most yeah oh i just you speak directly to my heart (laughs) i completely agree and i i also i also was was not that wasn't my experience before harvard i i didn't Mm. think in in that many levels of particularly with equity and concerns around equity and the difference between equality and equity or uh, et cetera. I mean, all of those, those deeper levels of thinking about the implications of our ideas and how we put those ideas into practice. That mm-hmm. was something that, that Harvard really, really uh, drove home for me as well. W- what would you say is, is the biggest difference between Harvard and Stanford? I mean, you, you've kind of hinted at some big differences culturally, but just one last question before we get into your ideas on innovation and design thinking. What are the biggest differences? If let's say I'm one of those amazing students that gets to choose between Harvard and Stanford, what would you say are the differences? So I've been in that choice a couple of times. The the um, Harvard Stanford or Harvard Stanford Oxford actually decision, mm-hmm. um, which has been a real. It's a really ridiculous. Um, it's very privileged, and as my mum said, there's no wrong answer. Yeah. Um, a very privileged situation. But I think that if you are in that situation, the thing about them that is really different, I think, is um, 
is about if if what you want to do is go out into the world and shape policy and sh- and sort of shape the world, then I think that Harvard is prepares students to be shapers. Um, I think Stanford prepares students to be makers. Um, so if you want to go out into the world and you want to make something and create it or build a technology, that that to me is in essence how I would define the two schools. But obviously that's very um, high level and generalizable and, and there's definitely going to be nuance where that doesn't hold up across the different institutions. But I have a lot of friends who've done MBAs at both and, and that's also something I hear a lot from them when they're deciding um, Harvard or, or Stanford for business school as well. Yeah, well said. And uh, uh, let's let's move into kind of your ideas. I want to get into some of those ideas that literally change the way I teach, um, which I can't say that about any other teacher. Well, I can't say it to the same extent about any other teachers at Harvard. Um, can you tell us why you push your students to explore with what you call optimal ambiguity? Introduce us to this idea. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, ambiguity is, let me just say, uh, um, it, it's become a lot more complex recently because in the pandemic, so many students have had so much uh unoptimal ambiguity in their lives that it's this has also been a really uh, interesting time to be somebody who teaches ambiguity so um what is the point of optimal ambiguity so optimal ambiguity is this sort of situation or moment um or construct where uh, a learner is able to um, have a sense of the direction that they need to go in but they're also able to exercise um agency over and and that means manipulate their um, social emotional cognitive and and physical um, uh, environments to be able to uh, show up in that space in as an embodied uh, being um, and uh, and ultimately through that process of of experiencing agency in a learning environment learners uh, learn things in a way that is more durable they engage both their thalamus um, through their thalamus they engage their hippocampus and their amygdala and so the like strength of the um, neural pathways that they create are much stronger and um and ultimately one area lighting up basically the whole brain lights up when you're struggling in that way is that Yes, exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. Instead of it just being the hippocampus, which is like recall. So, you know, oh, I've learned this and I'm going to put it in this box. So I often think of that as like a library card filing system. (laughs) This way, you know, um, uh, when you engage emotion and your whole being um, and you're wrestling and and engaging with learning in a posture of agency, um, those uh, connections are not just a card that's being put somewhere. Instead, they're uh, connected to existing knowledge that you already have that you used to create that new knowledge. They also have an emotional component. So there's much more connections, like literally many more synaptic connections around that piece of knowledge. And so it, it's it's stronger, it's more durable in your brain. Um so that's a big part of why I teach with optimal ambiguity and, and the way that we do that is through this method that we call explore before explain. We're not the only ones in our class who do it. You know, NASA use explore before explain and if it's good enough for astronauts, it's good enough for us. Um, 
but you know you often see these videos of their big um like their big zero gravity pools and stuff that's what they're doing right they're getting in the pool in their their get up and they're going down there experiencing something and then they're all coming back to a classroom and they're unpacking it Mm. um and so it's that same it's it's that same method of um uh of how do we make sure that learners can exercise agency in their environment and create the most durable learning? Um, yeah, sorry, I could keep going, but <laughs> yeah, I, I could keep listening. <laughs> this is so good, um, and and it's so so relevant. I'm not sure you fully appreciate how relevant this is to my listeners because all of my listeners, well, most of my listeners, reject kind of the traditional advice. That, that you might hear for someone who, uh, who has ambitions to attend an Ivy League or a top tier school. So most, mm-hmm. most of the advice out there is take the hardest classes possible, get great grades, which is good advice, get near perfect test scores. And then it's, it's demonstrate leadership in as many uh, activities and in as, many, in as many domains as possible and develop a spike, quote unquote. And, and what I tell my students is throw out the, the recipe. The, throw out the to-do list that someone else says, look, this person got into MIT and this is what they did um, because that person most likely authentically wanted to do the things that they did that then got them into MIT. And what I tell my students is pursue your curiosity with vigor, right? Whatever you're interested in, Free up time on your schedule so that you can be curious and you can just explore like a journalist, like a scientist, and you're going to get into a ton of ambiguity, especially when you begin, right? You don't know what it's like to be an expert in the thing that you're curious about. And so you come up with questions to ask. You come up with things to do to research it out. And it's total ambiguity, but it is engaging your whole your whole body. And or your whole mind, at least, and and I would say your heart and 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 everything. Your gut as well. Gut and, yes, and the reason why is this engages you so completely as a human being is because we we uh, first we spend time exploring their core values. So every every child and every adult, every human has things that matter more to them than values that matter more to them than other values. And when we identify those core values that are being violated. And then we try to find ways to, to, to solve that violation, to make the world or at least make our small community a little bit better. Then we pursue our interests with, with curiosity, with vigor, and we come back with this plan to make an impact, to do something about what we're learning about and, and what we're discovering. And everything along that path requires so much ambiguity and your first answer about what's special at Stanford is this mentality of optimal ambiguity. <laughs> I, you didn't say it that way, but you said, look, you've got this brilliant idea. Let's prototype it. Let's, let's, let's figure it out. Let's start doing it. And that mindset is, is so critical to the, teenage, the teenager who generally, if they don't kind of hear a podcast like this, if they don't hear you explain what, how important this is, then they're probably going to be thinking, yeah, I'll make my impact. I'll, I'll make the world better after I'm qualified, after college, after I'm a professional, then I'll know what I'm doing. Then I can come back and make a difference. And that's because they don't 
they don't feel comfortable with the ambiguity. They don't feel and comfortable I, exploring without knowing more. And we we don't give people permission to do that. I think is uh, you know a really big part of it. At a place like Stanford, I think why that exists is because everybody around you is doing it, and so you can you're like, well, I can do it because they're all doing it. Yes. And so there is this essentially permission inherent in attending Stanford or being in a place like Silicon Valley that says to you, hey, I'm allowed to try this too. Whereas, so I grew up in Australia and Australia is pretty famous for this thing that they call tall poppy syndrome. Um, and essentially it's this idea that you can't be a poppy that is taller than the rest of the field. You have to be the same height yes. as all of the other field okay. of poppy. Like and, the nail um, in Japan, Japanese culture. You don't want to be the nail that sticks out because that's the one that gets hit down. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so, um, you know, that really taught me um, as, a, as a young person, I was like, well, why would I be allowed to have an idea? What would make my idea successful? Why should I do that? Who am I to think I could go to a school like Harvard? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really un, it's, that's really unhelpful for, for for kids. And and I was very fortunate to to have a teacher, also the only teacher that I really can point to, um, uh, who fundamentally changed how I operate my entire world um, and her name was Linda DeCipio and she um, was as it happens a, a religion teacher and she said to me um, essentially along the lines of like well I'm giving you the permission to go and try everything that you want to try and when you are unsure if you have the permission you have my permission so yes. you know here we go and um, as a young person, I think, you know, to your point about how do you get into schools like Stanford and Harvard, the the way that you do that is by having the permission inside yourself to already be doing the things that you would want to do when you leave the school. Yes. They don't want to look at your potential necessarily they want to get you because you're a proven success you know like you've already done all of these things I can see that I can see that they make logical sense they have a narrative associated with them they flow I can read that it's your self-directed interest that you have navigated ambiguity and this is the path that you've forged and so I can see that you coming here will help accelerate that it's not the thing that would start it um, and I mean, I get that when you think about a school like Stanford or Harvard, they trade on the stories and values of their alumni, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what you want to think about is, um, am I going to make a good alumni? I think is the, the question that I I recommend people ask when, when they're reading their statements of purpose and things like that. Yeah, really well said and, and outstanding advice. It, it completely meshes with the admissions officers that I've spoken with. At Stanford, I haven't spoken, or at Harvard, I haven't spoken to any at Stanford yet, but the same, I mean, it, it absolutely meshes, it's absolutely consistent. Let me just, let me just try to pry one more jewel, one more uh, nugget of gold from, from your, your treasure box here. You've got so much wisdom, so much good advice. What do you wish you'd known before Stanford or Harvard? So kind of put yourself in the mindset of an aspiring, say, female uh, scientist, right? Or, or social scientist, someone who has ambitions, but 14 years old, what do you wish you'd known? 
before before these amazing experiences that you've had? That's a great question. I think um, uh, so. I have a vivid memory of being in early high school, sitting in the like careers center at the back of the library, reading a mm-hmm. Harvard brochure, and being like, "Wow, I'll never go to a school like Harvard." Um, and I think that the best advice that I would give that probably thirteen, so four, close to fourteen year old girl, would be that um, you are not defined by the people that are around you so just I think that so often we think about it's actually there's a term for it in in psychology it's called reference effect Mm -hmm. and it's that we measure ourselves based immediately on the people in our proximity and um and what so if we see someone in our proximity and their version of really successful is um, you know, uh, being a HR manager at a local company, then you think that that's what really successful looks like and then you limit really successful for you to that. Um, and so I would say be aware of the fact that that's a real cognitive bias that we have and that it doesn't have to be true. Like it, it just doesn't. You don't have to um, limit yourself based on the people that are around you. Um, what success looks like for them doesn't have to be what success looks like for you. Oh. So how would you suggest that someone step outside of their reference bias and explore the world that's out there that's bigger than than their own reference? Yeah, I, I think a big part of that is by getting involved in, um, so for me personally, the way that I did that was by getting involved in a lot of um, community uh, organizations and activities that were not just in my community, but sort of on the edge of it. So it intersected me with people who were outside of my natural sort of world of existence. Um, So, for example, um, instead of just working at um, or volunteering as my school promoted at a a nonprofit that was in my local area, I um, volunteered with um, like this, the state youth advisory board so I met young people from all across my state not just from the you know the small community that I lived in um I think that the more people that you meet the more um and in the in the broader cross-section of the community the the better your ability to see that like the reference effect doesn't hold true for everyone, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it challenges that discourse that you have or that bias that you have about reference effect. And it makes you start to uh, think, Oh, hang on, but this person did this and this person did this and this person's this. And so really I think the best thing you can do is meet as diverse a group of people in your youth as you possibly can diverse in so many axes from what they do for their job to their age to their you know um uh to their gender identity to their racial identity to the country of origin to like the more people that are different from you that you can meet the more you can realize what the world can look like beautiful meet as many diverse people as possible and be as curious about them as possible right ask questions and Open your mind. I love it. I absolutely love it. 
I think the only other thing, and I know we're at time, but I would just say is also really remember that you being successful is not dependent on somebody else being less successful. So don't perpetuate this tall hammer, this tall nail or tall poppy syndrome. Remember that people who are really successful, they're not taking your place. Instead, ask them, hey, how did you do that? That's awesome. Good for you. Can you tell me more? You know, it doesn't have to be a competition with the world. And how can I help you, right? Mm, can, I, can I get involved somehow? I love what you're doing. How can I be a part of your mission and, and then kind of learn what I need to do to, to lead my mission and, and do what I want to do with my community? Oh, Tessa, just so much wisdom. I love your experience. I love your, your wealth of understanding about not just these two campuses, but how humans learn and develop. We didn't even get into your expertise and your doctorate and what you're, what you're doing that's so amazing that, that, that you know, makes you a, a wanted commodity in the world as someone who can help, help organizations and, and help educators create better humans. And uh, I just really appreciate your time your expertise, your experience, your wisdom. Thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing that with all of us. Of course. And and thank you for doing what you're doing and, and changing and exposing people to so many different thoughts and ideas. I think that's amazing. And demystifying the Ivy League, which it desperately needs to happen. I love it. Thank you so much. Music for this episode came from We Are Here by Declare P. I'm Steve Gardner. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and share with a friend. Thanks for listening.